tax authorities are cracking down on transfer pricing. That much is no secret. Still, there are certain transactions that are getting particular attention. One of them is intra-group service transactions, seen by tax authorities as one of the easiest ways to shift profits and erode the tax base, which means that service transactions, one of the most common transactions in transfer pricing, is risky business. What do you need to know about them in 2021? Welcome, everyone, to the Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew DeMello, and on today's show, we have Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song and Transfer Pricing Expert Priyanka Venkatesh from our Argentina office, and they are here today to discuss. And speaking of expertise, you can earn CPE credits for listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're planting three CPE code words throughout the course of today show. Send all three to the Fiona show at xbs.ai. Again, that's the Fiona show at xbs.ai. Now let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Argentina and the United States are taking their relationship to the next level. The two countries will exchange country-by-country country reports, the tax authority equivalent of making it official on social media. The first exchange will pertain to financial years beginning on or after January 1st. 2018. The tax authorities plan to exchange immediately, but no later than 15 months from the last day of the group's financial year. While the IRS and the Administración Federal de Ingresos Publicos, or AFIP, are getting comfortable, it doesn't mean MNEs can follow suit. Tax administrations use exchanged information for high-risk assessments, including, of course, country-by-country country reports, which are only part of the compliance puzzle. It can't be used as the sole source of data to determine if transfer prices are arm's length. That's what your comparability and functional analyses are for. Listen up, history buffs. Here's a fun fact. The Philippines was named after King Philip II of Spain. Here's an even better fact. If you're into transfer pricing, which is likely, considering you've made it this far in the show, the Philippine Bureau of Internal Revenue, or BIR, issued new guidelines on Form 1709, which covers related party transactions and supporting transfer pricing documentation. The form submission is required by taxpayers who meet the following requirements. If they are large taxpayers, if they are receiving tax incentives, if they are reporting net losses for three consecutive years, and if they have transactions with a related party that checks the same boxes. As for transfer pricing documentation, it's mandatory for taxpayers meeting one of the three criteria. Drum roll, please. Criteria one. If the taxpayer is making 150 million pesos or 3.1 million U.S. dollars, and total related party transactions with foreign and domestic parties exceeds 90 million pesos or 1.9 million U.S. dollars. Criteria number two, taxpayers with related party tangible good transactions exceeding 60 million pesos or 1.2 million U.S. dollars or related party service interest or intangible good transactions exceeds 15 million pesos or 308,000 U.S. dollars. And last but not least, criteria number three, if transfer pricing documentation was required in the previous year. The good news is that transfer pricing documentation and supporting documentation are no longer part of the related party transaction form. But the tax authority will want to see it within 30 days if audited. So pick your battles wisely. It's a little less sticky in Singapore, at least in the tax department. The Inland Revenue Authority released an updated guidance to address COVID-19's effect on transfer pricing and related party agreements. It replaces the initial guidance that was published in September 2020 and aligns with the OECD's pandemic recommendations. This version covers treatment of government aid, how to show loss-making comparables and benchmarking, and the additional documentation required to illustrate disruptions caused by the coronavirus. The Singapore Inland Revenue Authority knows that businesses have been hit hard by the pandemic. The guidance is a gentle reminder that taxpayers don't have to go it alone. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. 
Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. And to begin our conversation today on intragroup services, I'm going to hand off things to the capable hands of cross-border solutions chief economist Mimi Song. Mimi. Priyanka, we're really happy and excited to have you on the podcast today. Just to get started, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Mimi. I've been with cross-borders for the last few months, and but it feels like a lifetime. It's, it's been a great experience working here. It's a different kind of transfer pricing analyses that I'm exposed to. We have interesting conversations with our clients every day on how we can change our mind from a traditional transfer pricing to a little bit more open and the other words experimental transfer pricing analyses. I am based in Houston, Texas, and currently hoping to get vaccinated in the next week or so. Oh, that's fantastic. I know the, the COVID situation down in Texas is a little bit interesting. Tell us about what's happening there on the ground where you are. Right. So as you know, through the past year, Texas has been one of the states which has been heavily hit by COVID. The issue with Texas is it opened up before any other state did. So in March 2020, when other states were still in 100% lockdown, Texas went ahead and opened up, but they still had the mask mandate. That being said, two days ago, the governor, Governor Abbott, came out and said that since vaccines are being provided, A, they're going to remove the mask mandate and B, businesses are going to be open 100%. That being said, we have to take into account that so far only 8% of Texas population is currently vaccinated. Most of the small businesses have come out in support of the mask mandate. They have said that they will continue to insist that their patrons wear masks while they're in, inside of the establishments. There has been a lot of controversy around is our masks required or not, which to me at this point is a moot point. So several epidemiologists have come out in support of wearing masks and have encouraged and provided adequate knowledge that wearing a mask is more so for the safety of others around you. So it's important that the residents of Texas continue that until we are at a good place. So so we'll just have to wait and watch at this point, but you can be assured I'm staying home. And yeah. if I go out, I'm going to be masked up. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So I'm actually kind of curious too, you know, as a, as a transfer pricing expert, Priyanka, how did you get into transfer pricing? Well, it wasn't my first option. I'll tell you that. <laughs> and I always tell that to my clients when they, you know, hesitate sending information saying that this is not the most exciting. I know this is more of a ritual for you. However, my background is in economics and I mm -hmm. was doing in my prior life, what we did was, you know, we created risk portfolios for banks. So the Fed required you after the 2008 financial crisis, the Fed required you to sort of insure your products in a way that the Fed wanted to know how are the banks going to perform in a situation like today, where right. there is an economic meltdown. So I did that for several, I did that for several years, and then it became repetitive. So I saw there was an opportunity for me to move within the organization within transfer pricing. And I saw the same principle applied. How do you meet a state, your country regulations to make sure you are compliant, or you are arm's length, or the risks that you're undertaking are being rewarded in a similar manner. So with that basic knowledge, I applied and that's how I got into it. And I've been in this field for, I think, five years now, and I absolutely enjoy it. That's amazing. I've, I've never heard that route, but that's fantastic. It was, was that portfolio, it was sort of risk modeling, was that related to the establishment of living wills and sort of what happens in worst case scenarios and things of that nature? No, it was actually for housing loans. You know, it oh, started okay. out with housing loans for HELOCs and then, you know, for credit card debt. The Fed just wanted to protect, they didn't want a 2008 financial situation again. Yeah. So they wanted to know if under those economic conditions, how is the bank going to survive? Sure, sure. 
Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. So let's start from the beginning. I mean, today we're going to be talking about intergroup services. And so for everyone listening out there, what, what exactly do we mean when we say intergroup services? So I always try to explain this in the simplest possible way. It's your mom makes you coffee every day and that's free of cost versus you go and buy from an establishment and you pay $5 for it. If your mom starts selling coffee to you, you want to make sure that you pay her the same $5 as you do for the coffee establishment. And the reason being the costs are more or less the same and the effort put is the same. I'm often asked, why do you need to report a subsidiary transaction or an intergroup transaction? And the way I explain it to myself is it's easy to fool the tax authorities that, hey, you know, these are the costs, but we didn't make any money and, you know, shift your profits to a place where, you know, you have a greater tax advantage. Sure. That's definitely a good way to think about, you know, transfer pricing principles and why they're, they're particularly relevant. Interestingly enough, right, when we think about multinationals operating on a global basis, there are lots of services transactions that occur because I think multinationals tend to be able, they want to centralize services, right? In, in their headquarters, for example. Right. Like accounting, legal, IT. Right. Typically, it's easier for multinationals to get the routine transactions, as we call them, such as, you know, or what we call them the headquarters services, such as legal, accounting, etc., set in one place. Mainly because they all follow, you know, the same protocol. There isn't a change in them country by country. So for example, your accounting, you know, your accounting policies or your payroll policy or how you administer your IT services is more likely than not consistent across countries. So let's take cross borders, for example, right? We, you know, are using our platform, Fiona, which is, you know, no matter which country our associate sits in, it is it is the same. Now if we have some kind of issue that we face with Fiona, it is easier for us to gather all the problems in one place so that we have a database of problems that can be resolved. It's also very cost efficient if you have the routine type services in one place because there's already a setup, there's already some knowledge. It's easy to communicate the knowledge amongst team members. And like I said, again, the database of problems is present in front of you. Now, the pros of having a headquarters service is it's usually there is a office setup. There are people who are trained. It is easy to expand given the knowledge. While the services itself may not be, they'll be technical, but they may not be categorized as value added services. But the services themselves do not require a high level of skill. So, you know, a reasonable markup uh, of like 5% or 6% for the services provided is considered good enough. That being said, now for one of my clients, the headquarters service was based in Netherlands and they were providing services to the rest of the world. The markup they charged was 5%. And then, you know, when you think about countries such as a developing nations, such as India or Nepal or parts of Eastern Europe or Africa, getting services from Netherlands, that ends up being a really high cost service just because of the foreign exchange, right? So that I would consider a big con or that that may be seen as a potential problem. But overall, this setup seems to be work very well in a transfer pricing environment because a, it's easy to document, it's easy to justify the price. You know, you know there are other entities doing similar work and for the company, it does bring economies of scale. So something to think about for me always has been who defines the functions and services that's, that's been carried by the company. And like you said, if you're centralizing it in the last year, especially we've seen that a lot of companies have said, hey, you know, we have an agreement where we usually say we'll pay a 5% for services, but now the headquarters is absorbing the cost because, because of COVID, we have not had, we've not made any money. So yes, the companies are looking to centralize, but you know, a, a constant discussion we are having is 
who absorbs the cost then if the affiliates are not making any money. And just to interrupt very quickly for our first CPE code word, that code word is centralized, as in MEs use intragroup services to centralize operations, such as one entity conducting HR for an entire group. Again, our first CPE code word is centralized. Back to our conversation. Well, when we think about the transfer pricing definition of what is an allocable service, right? It's pretty rigid. And we have to prove that that service, in fact, resulted in a beneficial service and it's not a duplicative service and it wouldn't be categorized under stewardship or, you know, even provide what's considered a, an indirect benefit or a remote benefit, right? I, right? One of the questions I'm sure people will ask. So when I was in-house at MUFG Union Bank, we allocated about mm -hmm. over $800 million of service charges every year. Mm -hmm. It was insane, right? <laughs> and when we tried to demonstrate to each of the beneficiaries, like let's say we call our Mexico office and say, we're going to charge you, you know, $100,000 this month for ABC services. We always used to get pushback from the Mexico office and they would say, well, this is too expensive, right? And right. so, I, you know, when you hear that sort of response from an intercompany beneficiary, you know, they don't have much of a choice. So let's, let's start there. Right? From a related yeah. party basis, they don't have much of a choice. Why don't they have much of a choice? Ha, Mimi, uh, <laughs> this is, uh, <laughs> okay. so A, you know, there's no agreement in place. U.S. is providing these services. I'm assuming MUFG, you know, the headquarters is in the U.S., but U.S. is providing these services to Mexico, but Mexico doesn't think the value added is that amount of money, A, because they probably get it for a lesser cost. B, you know, they think that the parent entity is making so <laughs> is the one that's taking the profit. So because it's a related party, they think that the parent entity can bear the cost. Right. There's a little bit of a the sentiment that it's it's kind yeah. of like your mom right. example, right? It's your, yeah. your if your mom started charging you for coffee, Priyank, you'd be like, why are you charging me for <laughs> coffee? <laughs> that is right. Because <laughs> she's your mom, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> so it's, I mean, I think that, perspective is even relevant from a related party perspective to your point. I agree. And, you know, to add to your example, one of my other clients, they're a law firm and <laughs> the parent entity provides law expertise for countries worldwide, for its affiliates worldwide. However, it only charges an additional markup fee from, you know, two countries and hmm. the others refuse to pay. It's just... <laughs> they refuse to pay because they say that the tax authorities in their country will not be pleased if they go ahead and pay that additional fee. That's an interesting point, right? Because tax authorities are viewing these services sort of on a unilateral basis. Let's think about that for a second, right? If the entity is the recipient of services, then a tax authority might view that payment to a related party as non-deductible, and they could challenge that assertion, right? versus you look on the other side and the service provider side, if that entity is actually providing services, the tax authority would technically look at that service and say, oh, why aren't you charging out for it? Right. So in this case, because they're receiving it, I, you know, it would mean lesser profits for the local entity. You know, the, the tax authorities are happier with it. Right. The beneficiary, you right. know, as if they if they allow for that charge out and the deduction, then it's going to have an impact to their taxable income locally. Right. But, you know, going back to this concept, though, of the arm's length principle, Priyanka, I mean, when we think about the services, you use this terminology value add. Now, a lot of people may or may not understand what that means. You know, what is a value add service? Can you provide a little bit of context or an example there in terms of value add? So I think of value add as, you know, A, it's you're doing your job given as a script, right? So then your contract manufacturer, you know, you know you have to produce 100 units and you produce that and then that's it. And, you know, that's all that you do. So there's no responsibility in your head. On the other hand, you know, you are a manufacturer and then you say, hey, you're saying that asking for 100 units, but 
I think that there'll be more demand for it. So I'm going to produce 100 units, but I'm going to keep an additional 50 units in hand in case there is an increased demand. I also think that the logistics that we are using currently to ship from the manufacturer's factory to the distributors, we could work a special logistics price cost that would bring the overall cost down. So anything that you're doing additionally to you know, your set tasks, seems or routine tasks can be explained as value-added services. So Would you agree, Mimi? Yeah, I mean, well, let's talk about that a little bit because in your scenario, right, there's two mm-hmm. forms of payment. First of all, there's going to be the payment for the routine activity, let's say the contract manufacturing activity, which in and of itself is a service. Right. And then what you're talking about is even an additional layer of services or value-added services, right? Which may require additional remuneration above and beyond even that preliminary service charge. Right. Right, yes. Bianca? Yes. So I would think in my scenario, there would be two service charges. One is manufacturing and then, you know, I would say the procurement or logistics, you know, those are the two charges that the manufacturer should be charging for the services that they're providing. So this is why it becomes even that much more important to be able to isolate and identify the specific service transactions that are occurring even on an intercompany basis. Because it could be that superficially, it looks like just one type of transaction, but when you dig into the functions being performed, perhaps there's a that additional layer of value add? No, absolutely. We were discussing with one of our clients today who on the flow of the transaction, it seems like it is a simple contract manufacturing transaction. Mm-hmm. But when we analyzed it, they said, hey, you know, but the manufacturer speaks to the customer directly and then makes all these changes And, you know, then they send it to the affiliate who then adds another layer of enhancement to the product. And then it's finally, you know, given to the customer. So to me, it seemed like, and, you know, all the investment and everything else is taken by the entity which initially manufactures. But the client themselves, they weren't aware of this information until we started prodding them and discussing that, hey, if you don't want us to test them as a contract manufacturer, that means that they are doing additional services. And that's, you know, and very often you're within an organization for 10, 15 years and you just look at the transaction flow as A to B, but you're not really aware of the functions performed under transaction A and party B. Yeah, Like you rightly said, it's necessary to isolate the functions performed by each entity so that you test the accurate party and the accurate transaction. Yes, because I think that becomes increasingly more difficult when more and more entities or affiliates are asked to do additional things above and beyond what they might have been established for to begin with. I mean, let's take the COVID environment as an example, perhaps because there were disruptions in supply chains, different entities took on different responsibilities, functions, and functions ultimately result in, you know, potential new and additional services. That occur? Yes. Yeah, I would agree with that. Suddenly, you know, due to COVID, few things happened is companies had to A, reevaluate their supply chain, and these changes had to be made instantaneously. The manufacturing industry, I think, was more heavily affected than the service industry because most functions could have been performed unless, you know, you were a first responder or you had a frontline worker most services could more or less stay in the same place. But but you're right, you know, companies had to reevaluate how they conduct business now and going forward, assuming there was no end date to the pandemic. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, 
penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. We hear all the time tax authorities are cracking down on transfer pricing. We know this to be a reality. We see this as a reality in terms of the developments on a local country basis. What types of situations are challenged in service transactions? I think we touched upon this briefly, right? And certain, it's almost like the affiliates are challenging the service provider who might be the headquarters before even the tax authorities challenge them, right? But let's let's talk about the tax authorities side. What kinds of situations come up in service transactions where tax authorities are, are heavily scrutinizing multinationals? So the transactions which we are more careful about are, you know, contract R&D services, which is really difficult. We will see this going forward with pharma companies because it's especially difficult under COVID environment where Previously, you know, we had a client where the R&D work was done in a systemic way and it was based in the UK and they had their affiliates in the US and the affiliates in the US had some say in the work and then the proprietary rights was owned by the US, but there was a clear flow of who makes the decisions, who carries the risks. In situations like this, under the pandemic, it would be really tough to define on where decisions are made because everything is happening so quickly. So where I would try to be the most careful is, I would say, contract R&D services. The routine services are routine services. The other thing I forget to mention is, and something that maybe if you want to touch upon briefly, is where does the management sit? Previously, right. you had the management sitting in a single office, you know, and people would meet together like four or five times a year or, you know, go to the headquarters and meet four or five times a year. That's not been the case anymore. And when management costs are allocated and management costs are not 5% or 6%, you know, they, it's, it's a higher cost. And when they are, you know, seated in different parts of the world, how do you then evaluate the transaction? I would look at these two transactions with a close scrutiny and get as much details as possible before we go and analyze. I think there's two really important points you're making here. Number one, when we think about intercompany services, there is an interplay with respect to services, goods, and intangibles, right? Because right. where service is being provided, where certain activities and services and functions are being performed could absolutely have an impact to where intangibles are, in fact, being developed and who is responsible for the development and ultimately which could have an impact to who owns the intangibles, right? Right. The second point that you've highlighted here is that strategic management costs, because of the inability for high-level executives to travel to certain jurisdictions, or perhaps they went to their vacation homes, right, <laughs> in different right. countries, this is, this is a potential nightmare of PE risk, depending mm -hmm. on where these activities are being performed, because location could have an impact to whether or not you're creating a local permanent establishment. At the beginning of the pandemic, no one knew how the pandemic is going to turn out. We all thought it's going to be four weeks and then we'll all be back in the office. And now when we look back, we were so naive to think we'll be back. Like summer, we had plans. But at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, people started thinking, hey, you know, I have a few weeks off. Let me just go to my vacation home. I can drive there and start working from there. But we are talking about different countries, like people being located in different countries and making decisions. But even yep. locally, firms started coming out and saying employees are not supposed to move out of their tax jurisdictions because that has a tax impact for the company for different states. So even and companies like Facebook, you know, started saying, hey, you know, if you are living in certain radius of California, your pay remains the same, else we'll have to rethink about it. And I I know there was some discussion on, on that. I don't know how far it went, but 
even locally companies started doing it for their employees within the same country. So I can only imagine the the considerations that companies will need to make as you know they close out their year end and discuss the transfer pricing for the services, for the value added services provided. There is a chance that it might not be as straightforward as it's been in the past. And when we think about the implications here of, of these more higher value services, like if we're thinking strategic management services and things of that nature, I mean, these are the services that really without the businesses could not operate and function properly. And, you know, as we discussed earlier, these decisions had to be made within a few hours. Right. Yeah, like you, you you didn't have time. You just got together on a Zoom call <laughs> and, you know, you, you made that decision because, you know, things are moving so fast. And at the same time, you know, things are moving fast from a business perspective, but the situation wasn't changing as fast in the sense of COVID. You saw that the pandemic has stayed on for that much longer. So I foresee that as an issue for, I would say, at least until the next two years where, you know, things are more stable from an economic perspective. How do you feel about the fact that India has a safe harbor on various types of services that's close to 20%? India is a different... (laughs) (laughs) India is a very... (laughs) <laughs> I wanted to say India is a different beast on its own. India transfer pricing rules have always left me confused despite my years in transfer pricing. Mm-hmm. It's been very tough to negotiate with the tax authorities. So few things have happened in the last few years. It's contradictory because the Indian government has been open to business, but at the same time, it's been promoting locally sourced goods and services. You know, we've tried to work with different APAs and the APAs get stuck with the tax authorities for a long, long time. You know, if you work with any tech or any consulting company, tech, uh, strategic or big four consulting, you will see that even internally, the companies does make a lot of money, you know, having an overseas establishment. That is not to say that, you know, the employees in the overseas establishment are underpaid. In fact, they are paid market you know, rates, right? They're paid market rates are right. higher and, you know, they're given additional benefits. However, you know, you're not comparing apples. You're comparing a rupee to a dollar. Yes. Yeah. Which in itself, the fluctuation has been high. Like when I moved to the U.S. 14 years ago, mm-hmm. you know, a dollar was worth 38 rupees. And today a dollar is worth 72 or 73 rupees. Oh, wow. Which it's is, like which double. Is, yeah. Which is great for me yeah. when I'm going to India or, you know, if I have to send money home or for anyone else who's taken a loan from India, it's great. But to say that the foreign entity has benefited, yes, they have. But my point there is it's not because they are not providing the company the right amount of reimbursement or, you know, for, for, they're not paying the right markup for the services, but it's because of the difference between the currency. And that's more economic in nature than transfer pricing, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And yet it's being tied to a transfer pricing remuneration. Let's, let's give some perspective here. Because if India is expecting, you know, a 20% markup on various services, what's the average markup on on those types of services in other jurisdictions, Priyanka? Typically, stepping back a little bit, you know, Mm -hmm. whenever you're discussing an arm's length range, you're not talking only about the country that's being paid, you're also talking about the country that is paid. So let's just say there's a U.S.-India transaction and India, you know, provides tech support and India is asking for a 20% markup. The U.S. itself, if it, you know, if the U.S. entity outsources it to, say, any other country, the markup is not going to be, for routine services, anywhere between 6 to 7%. Much lower than 20%. Right. Granted, there is there is going to be a difference, a difference in, in the cost base. Yes, a, a difference in the dollar value. But what you need to see is how much does this actually cost in that currency? And as long as you're paid that or the affiliate receives that, I think that should suffice. And I would, you know, I would say that if the entity, if the safe harbor rule was, you know, instead of a twenty percent rule, if it was negotiable to even ten percent, I would think that that was massively benefit both the Indian affiliates as well as the international affiliates. 
This, I think, may end up hurting the service providers long term because in the Indian subcontinent, there are other countries which are developing those skills. So, you know, th there are other good markets if you shop, look to the right and left of India. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's right. I think Bulgaria has a lot of engineering talent these days and, and many other jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. You're right. Eastern Europe is a big market. Romania is another country that, you know, people have been looking at. Philippines and other nations people have been looking at. So I understand that, you know, the, the country needs to grow and, you know, the country's economic policies need to support the entities that are established in there. However, you have to keep in mind that IRS is going to come down on the U.S. entity if you say, that you're giving 20% markup or someone picking up the call and asking you to restart your computer. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> that, is, that is absolutely true. Interrupting once again very quickly for our second CPE code word. That code word is outsourcing. As in American Express and GE have all moved back office operations to business services outsourcing hubs outside New Delhi. Again, the CPE code word is outsourcing. And back to our conversation. And you mentioned a point earlier where part of this is sort of this sentiment, a local sovereign sentiment to try to promote the use of locally sourced services, for example, right? And that's not limited to India. I mean, I think Brazil is very much in that case. They apply a separate tax on inbound service charges where it, from a transfer pricing perspective, it doesn't even make sense to charge it or collect that amount because the tax in and of itself is like an additional 50% on top of what needs to be paid. You tend to see a lot of these unilateral measures, I think, in many jurisdictions that are mindful of trying to promote locally sourced services. But proving the need for a service though, right? I mean, I think that's that's the crux of doing a good analysis or good transfer pricing analysis, the benefits test. And what we used to refer to and not so much anymore as the integral test, right? So is it beneficial? Is it integral to the business? You know, when you think about intercompany transactions and the sale of goods or the purchase of materials, you don't have to prove that those actually provided a benefit. You know, that like even if a distributor were to purchase a bunch of inventory from their related party and that inventory sits in their warehouse and the distributor doesn't sell it, the distributor still doesn't have to validate that they purchased the right amount, right? Right. <laughs> of goods that they benefited from that intercompany purchase. So the standards for service transactions much more rigid, especially because we're talking about, you know, intra-group services that allow centralized beneficial headquarter type of services or back office support services. So tell us a little bit about the benefits test, right? What is this and what exactly does a taxpayer have to prove? You know, like, like you said, you have to prove that the services that you are providing to the parent entity is in the name of the test, it's beneficiary you know, that the, that the other entity receives a benefit from the services that you're providing. And the reason that you need to, you know, support or you need to justify this is... Can we talk about your mom example for a second? Because I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I think this is interesting. So, you know, in that example you gave where your mom makes you a cup of coffee, right? Yeah. Now, if your mom was already in the process of making an entire pot of coffee because she wanted to drink coffee herself. Right. And then you came along and said, oh, I want some coffee too. And you poured yourself a cup. Did she provide you a beneficial service? The coffee's already there, so I'm just taking it. Correct. Right? Like, I, I, right. it's not a benefit. That's what I might consider, that particular example, I might consider that passive association. And we didn't talk about this, but there are explicit types of services that are not allocable, right? Where right. the benefit, where, sure, there is a benefit when you think about the definition of benefit, Priyanka, because you got your cup of coffee, right? Right. <laughs> so you got you got something out of it. But it was a very indirect benefit. And in fact, that's where passive association is defined because you got the benefit of getting a cup of coffee because it happens to be you live in your mom's house. Right. Now, put that in the context of how can it become an actual beneficial service? I think that if your mom was sitting on the couch enjoying a, you know, just reading a book <laughs> and you came down, <laughs> right? 
Oh, you came downstairs and you said, hey, mom, can you please make me a cup of coffee? And then she had to actually get up, grind the beans, actually go and buy the beans, for example, right? She has to actually mm-hmm. buy them because there's no coffee in the house. Then she has to grind them, just put water in the machine, and then she has to make that cup of coffee and then put it in a cup and serve it to you. In fact, there's a clear benefit there because number one, she went out of her way to do something explicitly for you. She went to go buy that coffee explicitly for you. So she incurred a cost. So you have to pay her back for that, right? Right. And I think that clearly demonstrates a benefit, which would make sense that you should pay her. If, if Basically, if she weren't your mom and you yeah, just yeah. a stranger off the street and said, hey, can you make me a cup of coffee? <laughs> that person would not make you that coffee unless you paid them. I agree. And, you know, the other thing, not now that I'm thinking about benefit sets and about all my clients, the other thing which we would usually use to support is say, for example, one of my clients, they, what they do is they provide bicycles, you know, in different countries. And it's sort of like rent a bike. And the headquarters services are always provided in Netherlands. And what they sort of do is they act as customer support. And we had to prove why this is this, this service needs to be in Netherlands and not anywhere else. Hmm. And one of the reasons which we had to use was because Netherlands was the primary market before any other country. And they have had this setup and this experience for a long time. So they can deal with different sort of situations that they have seen. And we sort of included that in our analyses. And that's actually a really important point you make, Priyanka, it kind of going to this idea of why is the service coming from a different country, right? What is, the, right. what is that incremental benefit of having it centralized in the Netherlands? In some ways, I see it as, yes, there's a, clearly, to your point, there's clearly an additional level of experience from that, which is why the Netherlands is the one providing the service. But in addition to that, there's a cost savings component here. It's sort of implicit right. that if you were to create another customer support center in a different jurisdiction, you'd have to incur additional costs. You'd have to incur additional right. costs, right? So there's there's a cost savings there. There's also economies of scale that needs to be taken right. into consideration, right? And that is what we said. We said the Netherlands entity already has an office set up in place. You know, it has the basics, which is a computer, a desk. It has, you know, the software's set up like in the computer mm-hmm. to set up any issues and the tech support to help with any software issues. There's a contract. The Netherlands entity has a contract with a third party. So if there are any issues, we can get that fixed right away. So given all these reasons, we think that the, the support services for the biking uh, mishaps, <laughs> if I may say so, <laughs> need to be in the Netherlands. And then we use that as a reason, not we, we didn't use that as a reason, but that sort of became a baseline because the office was already there in place and they started expanding their services in Netherlands because it was just easier to grow the office out there and get talent to move to Netherlands versus setting up new offices in different parts of the world. Yeah, that's a great reason. I, I don't know if you've run into this situation before, but I'm sure you've had to conduct a lot of function interviews and interview certain people and say, what do you do? How does it provide benefit? And that that benefit question always, I feel like, elicits a a negative response. People are like, what do you mean? My service is not beneficial? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you would ask, you know, do you have people reporting to you? Like, who, who says what you need to do? And sort of in the past, like, I've built out several races, which basically tells you who's responsible for each function under each group or, you know, under each transaction. So, and I have, you know, like you said, that when you often ask uh, what is the benefit that you provide, that usually doesn't elicit a positive response. Right. (laughs) Yeah. No, it definitely doesn't. It's like, of course, I'm providing a benefit to them. But when you really dig into the type of activity, it's not necessarily a service that would be deemed beneficial as a an allocable service to the beneficiary, clearly it's a benefit for the entire multinational. It just may not be allocable, right? So right. people get a little bit sensitive to that for sure. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> and interrupting one last time for our third and final CPE code word. And that code word is scrutinizing, as in tax authorities are notorious for scrutinizing service transactions. Again, our third and final CPE code word is scrutinizing. Back to our conversation. Some services are automatically excluded where you shouldn't allocate charges at all, stewardship activities. So tell us a little bit about the types of services that are not at all allocable, that should not be allocated at all. Like you said, stewardship, but any decisions that's made by the board of directors, you know, they are not actively a part of the company's payroll, but they do make decisions that impact the organization overall. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's a reasonable assessment there, right? That certain services like those costs are, are not allocable. The other thing that I haven't seen this a lot, but I have seen this for one of the firms that, you know, I was doing transfer pricing analysis for. And Mimi, I'd like to know your thoughts on this. Mm -hmm. Is they had hired a strategic consulting group to come and provide a more efficient way of functioning. And this was applicable for the whole group as a whole. And... <laughs> That being said, you know, the cost was then passed on, the headquarters absorbed the cost, but then passed it on to the other, as, as a pastor, yeah. at the other, as a pastor of the other affiliates, but the other affiliates refused to pay it saying that, you know, this we cost should be absorbed. Right. We, we didn't ask for it. We, this cost should be absorbed by the parent entity and not by us because, you know, it's not the change that we are asking for. What are your thoughts? on such a cost strict yeah. yeah so well first of all affiliates never ask for headquarters services right <laughs> right <laughs> so that argument gets thrown out the window in terms of what is allocable or not allocable you can't argue like i didn't ask for this well unfortunately you are part of a larger multinational organization and you might not have asked for it but there are clear benefits derived. And that's really, I think, where it, what it comes down to. Because if the strategic consulting group were able to identify key changes to the operating mm -hmm. model that ultimately impacted the bottom line, it's they save them money. They save them time costs. And ultimately, it hits the bottom line. And if that's the case, you can, you can absolutely prove benefit right? From those right. services. There's a very tangible benefit that came out of that initiative. And so I do think that they would be allocable, even if the affiliate were to say, I, we didn't ask for this. We don't need it. I'm not paying for it. Well, let's look at your bottom line. Let's right. see what these changes ultimately helped you achieve. And in fact, you know, I would assume that Yes, there were really beneficial services derived. Now, if the whole project resulted and it, it turned out one of the affiliates, the consulting group said, well, there's really nothing you can do there. They're, they're operating pretty well and nothing to find. Then I think you can make an argument the other way. I think the affiliate could make the argument to say, we're not paying for that. Nothing came out of it. We're right. We didn't benefit from it at all. Right. I just wanted to add what else happened with that is not only did they charge the cost, only they did have a project manager based on the headquarters, and then they divided, they added a markup to the service for the project manager. Yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Those were the issues that you know we were facing because the client wanted us to sort of provide a planning memo there <laughs> to support the charge where the affiliates weren't ready to pay. Right, right. Well, you know, at socializing intercompany service charges and getting affiliates to pay is like a whole task in and of itself. Right. It's a project. The, you know, the change management around that is, yeah, it's it, it's a full-time job. I, <laughs> I, I agree. And I have often noticed that, you know, even when there is a change of flow, affiliates sometimes prefer to purchase from third parties versus an affiliate. Yes. Because yes. they have better relation. <laughs> And I have seen the arguments that we don't want to, you know, we have a good relation with this distributor and we'd rather sell it to them than, you know, an affiliate. And then an affiliate. Which I find it, it's hilarious it when hilarious. you see that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, but but yeah. here's here's the thing. I mean, you know, and I think that's about control, right, Priyanka? I think yeah. it's just because they feel as if they have more control or because they know exactly or they can they can see directly 
what's what what the benefits are on the surface, right? right? And so they feel like they can control it. But when I think about that, I, you know, one of the things I tend to lean on is, well, from an intercompany perspective, like intercompany service perspective, let's just take, you know, the IT or, or some sort of internally developed platform or, right, locally, locally, a company, an affiliate could hire third-party IT support service providers to help them, you know, from a help desk perspective, maintain their network, give them that type of service, right? Right. But it becomes a problem because then they can't communicate with the rest of their company. And right. there's a lot of institutional knowledge. There's there's the infrastructure in order to share information back and forth. Then there's an additional level of security protocols. So no matter what, even if that affiliate were, and we get this a lot. I mean, we used to get this when, by the way, specifically with our like South American, you know, affiliates, when we would try to allocate IT service charges, they would always say, hey, that's way too expensive. We could get this for much cheaper locally. And the reality is you can't because there's all this layer of implementation that you haven't taken into consideration and integration that ultimately still needs to be built out because we operate under the same umbrella. There's a lot of benefits for being part of an organization. Right. No, absolutely. The one thing that I have seen companies, you know, would prefer having an affiliate provide the service. And, you know, this is everything that you just mentioned versus a third party is they don't want their product knowledge to be available to. It's like your grandmother's recipe. Yes. (laughs) You don't want it to go outside the family. That's so right. that is a struggle that I find between affiliates and, you know, the headquarters. And a lot of it is because when the company is growing, it's only thinking of one organization or one country at a time. So, and during the growth phase, a lot of this is not, you know, you just do what is required and easiest and makes more financial and strategic sense at that point in time. And, it, you know, the company that I was talking about earlier they used to manufacture some type of polymers and then they used to distribute it. They had a third-party manufacturer and a third-party distributor where the company would source and then, you know, the manufacturer would sell it to the affiliate and affiliate would then sell it to the third-party distributor. So that is the only way that the affiliate was involved. But now the company wanted to change the entire flow where there was an affiliate manufacturer, an affiliate, you know, title holder and affiliate distributor. And this change, it you know, like you said, the affiliate starts feeling a loss of control. And, and the other thing is then I have seen that the headquarters starts negotiating on the margins. So hmm. the distributors previously, you know, they would receive, say, in, in this particular case, the third party distributors previously received a 5% operating margin. And now they would receive 3.5%, which they were not okay with. So, you know, those are the issues that the companies have to have to deal with as they are changing sort of their operating model. And those are the considerations for them to think about and to work on. Since we're talking about margins and, and really starting to think, test the arm's length nature of these intercompany transactions, what are the challenges that taxpayers typically face when trying to, you know, do the analysis for intercompany transactions besides clearly having to prove benefit, right? Yes, besides having to prove benefit is one thing. And the other thing is setting up the right arm's length, which I find has been, especially given 2020, it has been all over the place. For the same services provided, you know, the company has a not been able to pay back the arm's length that was established or, you know, there has been, there is a serious variation compared to what was provided in the previous years versus 2020. And in most cases, you know, most countries take a three-year average or are open to a three-year average, which is good. But that has been a challenge that I have noticed with my reports. So it's becoming really, when we think about the current COVID environment, a lot of companies aren't actually able to pay the arm's length price for services transactions. Is that what right. you're saying? They, they, yes, they haven't been able to pay, you know, and, you know, to your point earlier, there has been a lot of restructuring that has yep. happened. So suddenly, you know, the smaller offices have been forced to shut down because A, there's not enough work. And then the larger offices have taken twice. So then your question also is, 
is the arm's length that you were paying the last two years, is that accurate? For example, for one of my clients who is a travel company, they had to shut down their smaller Eastern European offices and the UK office and the Singapore office now takes in most of the work. So the arm's length range that was paid, you know, the services cost that was paid is like 5% or 7%. It's no longer applicable because now they're performing additional services. But is that going to be the case in the future? Is something they're unable to answer? So how do you deal with, you know, such a situation? I think your example is interesting because I, I think it, there's two things that need to be considered, right? Number one, if the UK and Singapore are performing additional services, does that mean that they are incurring additional costs? Right. It increases their payment, but the number of resources haven't increased okay. overall. So okay. the same number of people are doing more work. I see. Yep. Which, which then justifies that second piece of it, which is that more work is the additional value add support, right? Right. It was easier to earlier pre-COVID to define what are the additional costs because there were pure quantitative things that you could look at, right? Saying that how did your cost increase? More office space, more people, more computers. Okay. Now with the COVID environment, the quantitative facts are not the same. You say that all the employees were provided an additional screen and, you know, additional laptop, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, has their work increased? You know, probably not. They're still working 10 hours. Mm -hmm. It's been tough to justify why there should be an increase in markup. And remember, you know, while your work has increased, it is the same type of work. So now they're responding to more customer emails versus before they were only responding to emails from a certain region. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, what has increased is the quantity of work and hence it still falls under routine services. So how do you then, you know, say that the, the accommodate for that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How do you then offer a higher markup? That's a, an amazing point because I think that this is where the qualitative documentation and the support, right? rationalizes exactly what the markup looks like, what the cost allocation drivers look like, and how, whether or not the cost base increased, right? So right, right. it's, it's, it's really fascinating. I, what I want to touch upon really quickly, because there's this whole section of the services, you know, of, of the regulations, especially in the U.S., pertaining to the handling of services transactions, right? 1482-9. Mm -hmm. So within that, though, one of the interesting things that happened, and I think the services regulations came out, I want to say in 2009, if I'm remembering correctly. So what's interesting about that is a whole new method was established, the services cost method. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So the services cost method is, you know, you just charge the actual cost, but you don't charge a markup. Right. And I think that the intention of the services cost method was always to try to simplify right. the allocation of management services or back office services. And I have often seen that in most cases, the services that I have seen that have not used a markup are usually passed through. I have not seen a lot of management services or allocation services in the reports that I have performed, that I have documented. In most cases, you know, if there has been a third party providing a service, that has been charged as a pass-through or a markup. So in practice, you haven't seen it applied in a lot of situations, even though you've, you've seen plenty of service transactions. I would say out of all of your different clients, every client probably has services transactions, yes? That's, that's right. a reasonable assumption, right? Right. In most cases, we've documented, you know, the most common services that I would see are routine services. Every now and then you will see management services, but the most common, you know, services documented is routine and, you know, full credit to companies like they, they understand transfer pricing or they understand basic transfer pricing. Let's put it that way. So they, you know, they understand that if an affiliate is providing services, you know, they need to define it or they need to identify where does it actually sit. And in most cases, Companies are also risk averse. They don't want to be, you know, they don't want to be charging an abnormal amount of additional markups or they don't want to be charging and no one wants to come under the eye of the tax authorities in any country. So 
Sure. But even though the services cost method, I guess, in practice, based on what you've seen, you haven't seen it applied in many situations because you were saying a lot of the service transactions you come across are routine versus management, right? So let's let's talk about that briefly. What exactly do you mean by routine services? So routine services are your services that the entire company needs, right? So your basic HR, payroll, you know, your admin services, so your tech support, you know, your orientation setup when you start a new company, you know, your expenses, your general admin expenses are usually classified under routine headquarters services. Right. And those are the services you will see that it's usually either provided by the headquarter or they're provided by, if not the headquarter, then I've seen then an affiliate that's situated in a dollar hoarding jurisdiction such as India. <laughs> but, you know, when you mention those services, right, those are all services that are technically on the white list for eligibility under the service cost method. That is true. That is true. They are under the eligibility under the service cost method. I was going to say, but why do you think that companies don't then elect the services cost method. And by the way, the, just for clarification, we know, our listeners may not, that the services cost method is not actually a method that must be applied. It is an elective method that a company can apply, basically that says, hey, we'll allocate these services, but we're not going to charge a markup. So why is it that you think in your experience, you've seen companies not apply it? So two things. What is the benefit if there is no additional markup, if there's no additional benefit provided to the services. Why should an affiliate provide the services to a different affiliate in a different country? To me, the reason you ask an affiliate to provide certain services is you see an overall benefit, which A, is not applicable in terms of quantity. So in terms of manufacturing, it's, you don't have the sort of resources to manufacture or the cost will be higher if you do it in your own country or you don't have enough manpower to do it. So if Suppose, you know, India is providing, in this case, India is providing headquarters services for all entities across the world. What is the benefit to the Indian affiliate to provide these services if they're only going to be paid cost only? Well, you know, when you talk about manufacturing, then that, that actually falls explicitly on the blacklist. There are very explicit services that, to your point, have been deemed as extremely beneficial that under no situation would third parties only charge costs for that type of activity, like a manufacturing or right. an engineering, right? Right, right. My point is that usually you're moving to a different affiliate because of the way the company is growing, because of you know different management decisions. In my opinion, if there is a foreign entity, foreign affiliate that's providing you and other affiliates a bulk of services, that means that there is some sort of benefit to everything that we discussed earlier in the call. There is definitely like knowledge, you know, which cannot be transferred. Mm -hmm. There's definitely, you know, the office setup. There are resources in place which add as sort of value added and not as direct, you know, cost only. While the services itself, for example, the payroll services itself may be cost only, mm -hmm. the knowledge provided and the infrastructure for it is additional, you know, that's what you're paying the market for. Sure. Or else you can hire ADP to do that for you, right? <laughs> right, right. Or, that. or maybe they do, right? I mean, I think that, yeah, I think that there's a, a little bit of, of both going on. But as you were talking, it made me think because this is where it gets really complicated and interesting because it's not black and white anymore in terms of where does the services stop and where does an intangible begin? Right. Like you say, like you have to be careful when you're documenting it because there is know-how, but is that know-how? Then you're talking about intangibles, but then yes. if you're talking about intangibles, then that doesn't fall in the routine markup at all. That's right. It becomes very hairy to deal with, that's for sure. Right, right. <laughs> a global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. 
So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross-Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai rd. That's xbs.ai rd. Thank you so much to Mimi and Priyanka for a very insightful discussion. Now comes the part of the show that I consider my favorite personally, and that's what we want to know. A hot seat, rapid fire round of questions about careers, getting to know our guests a little bit better. And today, Priyanka is in our hot seat. Always question one, Priyanka. Are you ready? I am. Yay. Okay. What mistakes do you see multinational entities making over and over again in transfer pricing so a lot of times you know i have companies saying hey charge of seven percent markup or 15 percent markup and then i go okay when was the last time you had an agreement in place or how did you come to this conclusion and you know they just you know the emoji with like two hands up that's what they do they're like i don't know you know it's i joined the company 10 years ago and this has been in place 20 years ago I feel companies and everyone has a lot going on, right? So everyone in their role is so caught up that, you know, this is often put at the back burner of not understanding how your flows are, where your flows are, and is there something that we can do to update it? Are we paying and receiving the right operating margins, markups, gross profits? So that is something that I see very often with a lot of companies. And it's also... It's like reorganizing your childhood bedroom, right? It's there's so much stuff in it that you don't know where to start. Of course. An experience I've been uh, dealing with for most of this week. Don't know where to start. Name one piece of advice that you repeat to every client. This is one piece that I say that, you know, I know you don't enjoy transfer pricing, but it's mandatory. It's like your yearly health checkup. It's we need to get it done. One positive that stems from the COVID-19 pandemic. I have started eating a lot of fruits and different type of fruits. You know, usually it would just come from, you know, the grocery store to my house to the trash can. But now, you know, I have finally started consuming them. Yes, yes. And what is your favorite stress reliever? I run. I am an avid runner. Nothing makes me happy than Same. running. And then, you know, Netflix binge. Who doesn't like that? Oh, of course, of course. Now it's, you know, all things pandemic, COVID 2020 to 2021, it's hard to see what the future looks like. But do you have a transfer pricing prediction for 2021 that, that you have some faith in? It's, I think a lot of companies are thinking back of going back to work, but, you know, they're going to rethink of how they want their new work life to be. Something companies especially would reconsider you know, the amount of travel that they used to do and, you know, businesses would consider how their board meetings are going to take place. So I think we are still in the midst of transition. I see more stability towards 2022. That being said, I am optimistic for 2021 as long as we continue the mask mandate. And wrapping things up, we want to thank Priyanka and Mimi for being on today's show. We want to thank everyone at home for tuning in. For more, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast along with our Transfer Pricing in the News podcast, that's the Fiona Show hot off the press, and our brand new Fiona's R&D Tax Credits podcast, all available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Andrew O'Donnell engineered and edited today's episode. Matthew DeMello hosted it. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Marilyn Mitchumstrom is our executive producer. As always, everyone, stay safe, wear a mask, and we'll see each other very soon. Until next week, we'll catch you then.